Peace to you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. There is an insert in your worship folders where you can follow along with our sermon text this morning, and also there are some notes that you can fill in, follow along as we go. Last Sunday, we came into a new church year. Our calendar year starts on January 1st. It's the same every year, and we celebrate New Year's Eve on December 31st, and then the beginning of the new year on January 1st. But our church year, we start that calendar four Sundays before Christmas. So this year that put us last Sunday, and we're still starting into this new church year. The first part of the year of the church, there's really two major parts. In the first half, we take a look at the life of Jesus, our Savior. So we start with the season of Advent, preparing for his coming. Then we get to Christmas, and we celebrate his birth. We have the seasons of Epiphany and Lent, where we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus. And then we have Holy Week, where we celebrate his death and his resurrection. And the season of Easter goes on for seven more weeks, celebrating what his resurrection did until finally We celebrate his ascension to heaven where he sits now and rules. And then the second half of the church year, the focus shifts after the celebration of Pentecost to the life of God's church, this community of believers, and what is our reaction to the life and work of Jesus. And so this year, as Pastor mentioned at the beginning of our service, this year as we go through that cycle looking at the life of Jesus, we're going to be unwrapping his story from the Gospel of Mark. Mark is one of four Gospel accounts, these four biographies of Jesus that we have laid out for us at the beginning of the New Testament in the Bible. How do you think you would start if God came to you and gave you the job of writing down the story of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Matthew and Luke go back to when Jesus was born. And they give us some accounts about the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke also both give us a genealogy of Jesus. They trace his ancestry back in time to Abraham, to to Adam, The Apostle John went back even a little further. John chapter 1 is this beautiful doxology. It's almost like a hymn of praise to Jesus, tracing his praise and his glory back all the way to the very beginning, to the creation of the world when the world was born. Mark doesn't take us quite that far back. In fact, Mark really takes a jump forward in time. And he starts his account about Jesus when Jesus was already 30 years old. He gives us a one-verse introduction to what is this account, who is it about, and then he dives right into the ministry of this man named John, whom we know as John the Baptist. So we'll give our attention to those words from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The text is printed for you on the sheet. It will also be on the screen 
Please stand as we listen to the words of the gospel of Jesus. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. What is Mark trying to do as he opens up this gospel account, this biography of Jesus. I think what he wants to do by pointing us to John the Baptist, by pointing us to Isaiah the prophet who had foretold what was going to come, I think what he's trying to do with verse 1 where we see just this string of names and titles for Jesus is to lay out for us Jesus' credentials. To let us know who Jesus is and why it is that he is qualified to be the one to save us from our sins. Mark, here in these opening verses and then throughout the rest of his gospel, he wants us to see that Jesus is the one who is mighty to save. And I think I was supposed to say that before the text. It just flashed up before we read it, but that's your first fill-in. I missed it earlier. Jesus is the one who is mighty to save us. And that's not just what Mark wanted people to see, that's what John the Baptist wanted them to understand too. As we look at, Mark, at John's message presented to us here in Mark, first we see him say, Jesus is mighty, he's mightier even than his servants. Mightier even than I am. John maybe didn't look that mighty. He looked probably a little strange. We hear about his outfit, this outfit of coarse-woven camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. He's living out in the middle of the wilderness. He doesn't look like a mighty king with mighty robes. He isn't living in a mighty castle or a mighty home. He doesn't feast at a mighty table filled with good foods. Instead, he's scrounging up the, the wild honey and the grasshoppers from the desert. But his outfit and his diet weren't just weird. They were a sign to God's people about his greatness. You see, the prophet Zechariah tells us that an outfit made of hair was the traditional outfit for one of God's prophets. In fact, there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 1 
during the reign of one of Israel's kings, a man named Ahaziah. The king fell through from the upper room in his palace, fell through that roof down into the room below and was injured. And so he sent some of his servants to go inquire of Baal, one of the false gods of the neighboring countries of Israel, to go inquire of this false god whether or not he was going to live. Those servants came back to King Ahaziah much earlier than he expected them to, and he asked them, why are you back so soon? They said, a man came to us when we were setting out. And he asked us this, he said, the Lord God Almighty asks, is there no God here in Israel that you have to go and ask Baal whether or not you're going to live? So hear my answer, Ahaziah. You are going to die in the bed you are lying in. And Ahaziah asked his servants, he said, what did he look like? Their answer, he was a man wearing an outfit of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, it was Elisha, Elisha, the prophet of the Lord. So Elisha, the prophet, is a man who's instantly identifiable by two things. He wears this cloak of hair, and he has a leather belt wrapped around his waist, the exact same outfit that we're told John the Baptist is now wearing. So despite his appearance, maybe even more because of his appearance, the people of Israel have this inkling, this inclination that John is someone special, that John is someone great. Jesus, when he comes into the picture and he starts teaching his disciples, Jesus would say about John that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But if you were to ask John himself, he would not present himself to you as someone who was great. Certainly not the greatest. His message to the people is the one who is coming after me is greater than I am. And when Jesus came to John to be baptized, we'll hear more about that next week, John told Jesus, Jesus, you've got it wrong. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be the one to be baptizing me because John recognized something. He knew he was a sinner. That he had sins that needed to be washed away. In verse 7 of our text today, we hear him say that he was not worthy to stoop down onto the ground to untie Jesus' sandals for him. What does that mean? It means that John believed that if he should presume to, to bow down on the ground before Jesus to simply help him take his shoes off, that he was not worthy enough to do that, that because of his unworthiness, should he presume to do that for Jesus, what he would deserve would be for God to wipe him off the face of this earth. Why? Well, because first, because of who John was, but then second, because of who Jesus was. In the third article, of the Nicene Creed, which we often confess as a part of our worship service. We start the third article by saying, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And you'll notice that we don't say who proceeds from the Father and the Son and John the Baptist. And John noticed that too. They didn't have the creed yet, but he had an understanding of that. John knew that the Holy Spirit was working in the hearts of people through the work that he was doing. We're told that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so as John preached to the people, sins were being forgiven. John could preach. I can preach. Pastor Borman preaches. That's our job. We speak words. But when through those words, sins are being forgiven, that's not our work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes not from me, not from Pastor Borman, not from John the Baptist, but the Holy Spirit who comes, who proceeds from God the Father and God the Son, just as we proclaim and testify to each other in the Nicene Creed. And John the Baptist baptized people. He put water onto people, just like I will be baptizing some of our friends here this morning in just a few minutes. John could baptize. I can baptize. You could baptize someone as a servant of Jesus, your God and King. But in a baptism, I'm simply the one putting water onto someone, and that's what John recognized too. But when through that water, that person is cleansed of their sin and brought into God's family, when through that water, faith is implanted into their heart and is allowed to grow there, that's not the work of the one putting the water on. That's the work of God the Holy Spirit. And the one who's sending the Holy Spirit, the one who in just a few minutes is going to be doing the work of saving souls at this baptismal font is God the Son, is Jesus. So that's what John is getting at when he says, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, he's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The one coming after John was the one who actually sends the Holy Spirit into people's hearts through the word, through baptism, to bring them forgiveness of sins, to connect them to himself, to bring them into God's family. That meant Jesus, the one who was coming after John, was none other than God himself. And so the message that Mark is presenting to us here, the message that John the Baptist wanted us to know is that Jesus is the mighty one. Mightier than his prophets, mightier than his servants, Jesus is God the Son. He's mightier, not just mightier than his servants, but Jesus is mightier than all of us. And that's where Isaiah was pointing us to, the conclusion he wanted us to reach in our lesson that we heard Pastor Borman read. Isaiah says, all people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers up and the flowers fall away because the breath of the Lord, the wind of the Lord, blows over them. Surely the people are grass. They wither and fall. But 
the Word of our God, the Word made flesh, Jesus our Savior, the Word endures forever. Just like John and his original audience, you and I have sins to confess, sins to repent of. We focus so much on things like food and money and the things that get us through day-to-day life, and we often forget about the things to do with the life to come, this everlasting Word of God that He has given to us, the everlasting gifts that are ours through the sacrament of baptism. We easily are distracted. And so like John, you and I find ourselves in a place where we are unworthy to stand before God, much less to kneel down on the ground before Him. And that call that we hear to repentance just reminds us of that all the more. The unworthiness that we have because of our sins. But John did not come and Mark did not write simply to make us feel unworthy. Who is it that they wanted to point us to? Look at verse 1 from our lesson this morning. John wanted to point Jesus Mark wanted to point people to a man named Jesus. Jesus is a name that comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means he saves. It's a name that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, had because he was given that name by his father, his adoptive father here on earth, Joseph. And Joseph gave him that name Jesus Because an angel from God, an angel named Gabriel, came down out of heaven to Joseph and said, this child will save his people from their sin. Mark goes on to explain to us that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. That title Messiah means that he is the anointed one. He's the chosen one, the long-foretold one whom all throughout the Old Testament God had been promising to his people the suffering servant who would come to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins, to take on himself the people's punishment so that he could bring them into his glory. This man, Jesus, The Messiah, Mark tells us, is more than just a man. He says that Jesus is God the Son. Come in all of his might and power, but come with that mighty power to save. And we heard that in the words of Isaiah this morning too. He said, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm, but to what end? to tend his flock like a shepherd, to gather the lambs in his arms and to carry them close to his heart. So John the Baptist, Mark, the gospel writer, this season of Advent that we're in, all of them point us to a Savior, this Jesus, who is both true God and true man. He's the one who came to redeem us from our sins, but also the one who is still to come, who is still coming 
to take us from this world and its curse of sin into his everlasting glory. And through his prophets, through people like John and Isaiah and Mark, through your own Christian parents and teachers and friends, your pastors, God has been preparing you to meet this mighty one. And that's the second thing Mark wants us to see this morning, our second major point. God is preparing us to stand before the mighty one. He does that by having his prophets come to you and bring you the twofold message of his word, the law and the gospel. First, he has those prophets set before you the message of the law, that you are not by nature spotless, blameless, or at peace with God, those things we heard about at the end of our lesson from Peter, where he says, strive to be spotless and blameless and pure, but as God's servants set his law in front of us and we see the expectations of our God, we, we start to dread and to be terrified by the fact that no matter how hard we try, we aren't going to be those things. And we hear John cry out, repent, Turn from your sins, and we think, but turn to what? That's all I am is sinful. And that dread that the law leaves us with puts us in exactly the spot we need to be to hear the message of the gospel. Right? That's what Mark chapter 1, verse 1 again said. It said, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. And as we look at that good news about Jesus from Mark over the course of this year, what you are going to find is that the promises of the gospel, the promises of the good news, swallow up all of the terror and condemnation of the law. So in three weeks when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, We're celebrating the fulfillment of God's promise to send his Savior into this world. And a few months from now, when we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Day, we're celebrating the fulfillment of the promise of God to rescue us from the penalty of sin and to bring us into that glorious resurrection with Jesus. A month after that, when we celebrate Ascension, We celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise to watch over us as our risen and ascended king who is reigning on high to protect us, to guide us, to keep us in the one true faith. God has used and is continuing to use his prophets through the message of his word, the law and the gospel, to prepare you to not just kneel before your Savior, Jesus, but to stand before him forever in glory. But he's not just using the word to prepare you. The last thing that Mark wants us to understand as we look at John the Baptist is that our God also wants to use you to prepare others to stand before the Mighty One. We see that in John as he had his ministry. And John's mission field was 
a literal wilderness. He, he was down in the desert to the south of Jerusalem, south of Jericho. In this desert wilderness, proclaiming God's word to people, and that message which God commanded him to proclaim was revealing another desert, another wilderness. And that was the wilderness of sin that God's people had found themselves lost in and were wandering in. And God's given to you and to me, he's given that same message. We have a responsibility to help lead people to see that they are like lost sheep wandering on their own, lost in the wilderness of sin. But John's main focus was not on the wanderings of the lost sheep of Israel. His even greater focus was on the mighty one, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. And you've been given that message too. In fact, the only reason that this world is still here, we heard it in that lesson from Second Peter, is because God has given us that message of the gospel and he is waiting for his church, for redeemed sinners like you and me to take that message of the gospel to even more lost, wandering people so that they too may come to know that he is the one who is mighty to save them. And it seems like maybe sometimes an overwhelming responsibility to take that message that he's given us and to share it with so many people who need to hear it. But I think right now, we're at a really great place to be able to do that. We like to complain about this thing called the Christmas creep. How every single year it seems the, the Christmas songs come on the radio and the decorations are for sale in the stores just a couple of days earlier than the year before. And maybe we complain about it, but I think the Christmas season is really an advantage to us as Christians. Because it's like God is setting up the ball on a tee for us. And I'm thinking baseball, not golf. Maybe if it was golf, it'd be a gimme putt where the ball is right there next to the hole. Right now, our entire nation is gearing up for the celebration of a day called Christmas. They're thinking about it. They're talking about it. And all we have to do is take the bat and knock that ball off the tee or put that ball down into the hole by letting them know what Christmas is really all about. That it's about a Savior who is mighty and powerful to save us. It's about the one who came to rescue us from the wilderness of sin by taking our sin on himself and paying for it at the cross. We can help them to see that Christmas is about the one who came to unite us to himself through his word and through the sacraments so that we could live with him forever. And if explaining all of that seems intimidating still, then all we really have to do is offer an invitation. An invitation for them to come and to celebrate Christmas with us here. Where as we worship, as we gather around the word of God, he will proclaim to them, just as he did to his people, the coming 
of the Mighty One. So let's be like John the Baptist. Let's be about that business of preparing our hearts to meet him, but also preparing the hearts of those around us to meet Jesus, their Savior, the one who is mighty to save. Amen? Amen. Amen.